0: God in heaven, as we enter into your presence, I pray today that we would feel that love surround us, that we would have peace this morning as we dive into your word and, and get to know you better. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. We're going to enter into our time of communion this morning, and we've been going through some soul care questions. And last week, we answered into the question, Do I thank God that I am not like others? And we looked at the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, who both came to pray at the temple. And the Pharisee said, Thank God I'm not like that tax collector. God, look at me, look at how good I am. And just remember, there's somebody over here who is terrible. And I'm so thankful, God, that I'm not like him. On the flip side, the tax collector came to God and got on his knees and said, God I need your mercy. I know that I've done wrong. I know that I've screwed up. I need your grace. I need your mercy. And God gave it to him. Jesus pointed out that the the tax collector was actually the one who was right in the situation even though the the Pharisee is the one who knows the religious law and knows everything that's going on. It was the tax collector who did right by God. So uh, taking it a step further this week again with that question do I thank God that I'm not like others? Instead of looking at uh, that question just in a plain view, I want to provide a challenge for you this week. I want you to find the trigger. When when you find yourself comparing yourself to others most often, There's usually there's usually a trigger. It can be Facebook. It could be Instagram. It could be a certain group of people that you're around. Whatever your trigger is this week, I want you to identify it, and then as soon as you realize that you're comparing yourself to others in any way, shape, or form, pray. Spend time asking God to soften your heart and realize that whether you're comparing yourself saying, I'm better, or comparing yourself saying, God, why, why can't I be like them? Pray and ask God that he would show you his love in that moment. And do it time and time again. Because it's not just going to be a once-a-day thing. Another challenge, uh, again, if you are a social media user and you have one of these things. One thing that I found that helped me as I went through this, uh, this question for myself actually about a year ago, was that I had my most used apps. Again, you you open up this thing and, and you've got a bunch of apps, right? And you put the most used ones in the most convenient thumb spot. So I'd go through and every morning I'd wake up and Yahoo Fantasy Sports is in that number one thumb spot. Then right next to it's Facebook, and then right above that's Instagram. So my my little L is my my most convenient thumb spots are those three things. And I started to realize that I was going through a period of being short with my wife and comparing myself to whether it's my friends' fantasy teams and saying, "Oh man, I like I want their team." Or and that sounds ridiculous to some of you, but I'm competitive, okay? Uh, or or going on Instagram and seeing like you know i'm having a little bit of fomo cuz i'm seeing my friends go do things uh, that i wasn't a part of or whatever and, and i'd start comparing myself to um, to what's going on and instead what i had to do was i had to take those apps and i i had to put them i put them in a folder where it's really inconvenient to get my it's, i put it all the way in the top right corner and because I, I usually, when I'm on my phone, I'm using my left hand. So, like, in order for me to get to those apps, I really got to make a conscious effort to get up there. And instead, what I did was I put the Echo app, the Bible, and the Bible app in my two most convenient thumb spots. So now, when I find myself in those in those positions, the most convenient thing is for me to go to God's Word, and and again, read. Spend time in prayer through the, again, the Echo app is like a prayer reminder app. So going to those two things first will put you in a mindset where you're able to put things in perspective, not just in your perspective, but in God's perspective, and realize that God's got a plan for you and that it's it's a pretty great plan if we let it live out. So... Um, Maybe, for, again, we're going to take about 30 seconds of silence. Maybe you want to do that right now. Maybe you want to switch around some apps on your phone. That's totally okay. Uh, maybe you need to pray and just ask God, God, help me identify that trigger for me that um, keeps pushing me to compare myself to others. Whatever it may be, spend this next 30 seconds or so uh, just in silence, thinking about that and uh, preparing yourself for the, for the week. At the end of that time, uh, we're going to move into one of four stations. There are two in the front here, two in the back, uh, so you can go receive communion. And again, if you are like my wife and you need that gluten-free communion, you can run out to the welcome desk and grab that there.
1: We need those times, literally weekly, to stop and focus on the cross, to remember what Jesus did for us and the way we're supposed to live in light of his action on our behalf. I loved your question on triggers. I mean, it didn't take me three seconds to know mine. You know, I live mostly in my head. I like to think. And so that's all I have to do is turn on uh, the news of a viewpoint that is not my own. And I sit there going, how in the world could people be so dumb? And I know because you do that too when you look at the way I think. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing that, and I'll find myself in those moments going, how dare I? set myself up that way. So, you know, this is a moment of pride. It's a moment of confession that, um, yeah, I, I, I do that. It was, it was immediate. So hopefully your trigger was there immediately as well. And you were able to stop and say, wow, God, you know, I, I am more like that, more like that guy in the temple that I actually thought. I, I do tend to compare myself and myself in ways that uh, comes across in a, in a haughty, proud manner. And and need forgiveness for that. So thank you. Our servers are coming to receive the offering right now, and as they do uh, for the first time in a couple weeks here, we have the links up there for you. Tell us again what the little plus mark is all about by the blue arrow.
0: The links is an email that gets sent out with our daily announcements at 8 a.m. every Sunday morning. So if you'd like to receive your, the announcements in your email so that you can go through and follow like any of, literally, the links that we're talking about, you can go to the church website, southfieldchurch.com, scroll all the way to the bottom, and you'll see those logos. You can check out our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff, but then all the way on the right side, is a, there's a blue plus mark, and if you hit that, if you hit that plus sign, you can sign up uh, to receive these emails. So again, as we're going through it, if you want to register for something or read something, uh, more in depth, you can do that right away.
1: And we call it the links because they literally are full of links, ways to be able to respond right now. So you don't have to feel guilty about pulling out your phone or tablet right now. Go ahead and pull it out because we do have some things we need you to sign up for. Uh, The first one there is about coffee teardown. If you've been looking for a for a serve, this might be a great one for you, just getting involved. uh, on a regular basis. Uh, basically, they it's a monthly schedule uh, to be able to be involved in making sure that coffee goes away after the end of a service. So if you're open to that, you can you can click on that link. And they're also looking for people who would occasionally sub. So maybe month a month doesn't work for you, but you could do it every once in a while. That'd be great. I've got the blood drive coming up um, on October 10th. Are you giving blood again?
0: Yeah, I am. And the cool thing about the blood drive is uh, Bob Coyne and I started a new tradition. Uh, we race to see who can give blood the fastest. <laughs> Last time I lost, because I totally misunderstood uh, what I was supposed to be doing, because I, I hadn't given blood in a while, and they put this, this pump in your hand, or like a stress ball, basically, and they say, you've got a pulse you know, as, as you're going. Well, I sat there for about 30 minutes, because I, I did a double, <laughs> a double donation, with my fist clenched as tight as I could. <laughs> and finally, she walked, like the, the lady, with the nurse walks over, and she's like, honey, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine, why? She's like, you look really stressed. I'm like, is this not what I'm supposed to be doing? <laughs> then I try and open my hand, and it's like I have the claw. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but yeah, the, the cool thing about the blood drive, again, it's October 27th. Uh, we are gonna be, we have the opportunity for every Successful unit of blood that we get uh, because we're going to have some students working it and running it. We actually get ten dollars per unit of blood, uh, literally to use for students for uh, for any of that. So we've actually purchased some equipment. uh, The TV in the in the nook uh, was purchased with money that we received because yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wasn't going there, but. Blood money. Yeah. <laughs> Come give us your blood. No. Uh, but it's, it's really cool that we're able to not only help uh, people who need blood. And again, my, my grandpa, you know, in the, in the few years before he passed, was going for transfusions sometimes two, three times a week. Uh, so it has a, a personal spot. for. We wouldn't for have had family. those last
1: couple of years with him if not for yeah. people giving their blood. It, means, yeah. it really means a lot. So there's it a means huge a personal appeal, but then
0: we also are able to see how it how we're able to, to do cool things around the church. Mm-hmm. So again, mm-hmm. it's a really good event. Uh, if you're scared of needles, sorry. Uh, but, <laughs> but it is, it's, it's a really
1: cool thing. So we'd love to have you get signed up for that. And then I want you to know that the membership seminar is actually starting this week. So that'll be a, a three-week a three week course that we'll be doing and give you a chance to learn about the, the history and nature of our church and ask questions. I'll be there. You can ask me anything, and, and I'll try my best to answer. So uh, that's the 9th, 16th, and 23rd. On all of those, you can go ahead and register or learn more. It's all there ready to go for you. So um, do you have any student stuff?
0: Nothing. Nothing extra special except for Refuge on Halloween. We are actually going to be moving it back from 6.30 to 8.30 to 7.00 to 9.00 because we had an outburst of students who were like, but we have thir- we're going to miss 30 minutes of trick-or-treating. I'm like, all right, fine. Uh, so it's actually going to work a little better with the event that we have planned for that night. Uh, so on October 31st, Refuge will meet
1: from 7.00 p.m. to 9.00 p.m. Good deal. And new dads, don't leave. New dads, just remember, um, there's a thing called the daddy tax. So <laughs> you're allowed to take anything your kid collects. It, it works out really well. Or at least the best uh, you can, You can tell I've lived off the daddy tax for years. <laughs> leave, leave them just with the... like
0: the orange and brown wax candy. There you like go. That.
1: There you go. I have determined that, sorry guys, this is not a great place to sit in our church anymore. Uh, this tends to be the area that people sit and then they decide they're not going to come anymore. So... Aubrey's used to sit right there, and now they're gone. And there's Mark Begwin sitting in his red shirt. And today's Mark's last Sunday with us. Uh, Mark's going to be moving a couple hours south. I told him if he was committed to God, he would drive. But um, <laughs> anyway, but no, his, his uh, dad and Mark, they're moving, they're moving a little bit further south. And I, I can't begin to express to you uh, how much Mark has meant to our family through the years. Mark's been here. He literally, one of the, one of the first people to come to our church and stay uh, after we came. Came in 96 along with the Webbers and um, in so many ways has been involved in serving behind the scenes here. And uh, it's just, Roger years ago recruited him to mop the basement floor. Not for pay, just to do it. And week after week after week, this guy would show up and make sure that that basement floor was ready for our kids. And then we move in here, and, and he's involved in making sure that chairs are set up every week. And then, of course, what, two weeks ago, we said, we don't have to move chairs anymore. Mark said, fine, I can leave. <laughs> so uh, it's just, it, it, there have been so many ways that he's been involved in silent serving. And then along with our students, years you can speak years to, to Years
0: and and years of serving with our junior hires and... Mark was so good at finding, finding that kid who would float to the outside, uh, whether it was because they were uncomfortable with being in large group or because they, you know the activity that was going on didn't fit their persona. Mark would find that, that student and reach out to them and show them love, and, and Mark has meant just an incredible amount to, to Refuge and, and to our junior high ministry. And that, that bleeds into Green Lake, and that bleeds into you know, everything that we do. So...
1: Uh, can't thank you enough, man. So, Mark, we Can't love you. you. We love you a lot. You will be greatly missed. Know that. You will be greatly missed. And from here forward, from where the butlers are up, nobody can sit there anymore. <laughs> all right? This is now our official empty space, so let's pray together. Father God in heaven, I'm grateful for the family that you've given to us and uh, for the the long-term relationships that we've been able to share. I thank you for uh, what Mark has brought to this church, the, the, the fingerprints, the impressions that he's left uh, on the things he's done as well as on people's lives. And I pray that as he and his dad uh, get the chance to start a new life together, that it'll be a, a season, uh, truly a rewarding season for him. They, he'll, he'll find friends and make connections quickly. That'll find a church to call home And that those people will recognize what a great gift they've been given in the form of this man, this godly man. In Jesus' name, amen. So today you are going to hear the most un-American sermon you will ever hear me preach. Now don't get tense, I'm not going political. We'll leave that to Fox News and MSNBC. Nor am I going to rant about the president, the police, the military, not that and I'm not going to address any of our many social ills. The core teaching of Jesus goes against everything you will hear preached in present-day American culture. And by preached, I mean the nonstop flow of messaging that we are bombarded with by commercials, TV shows, talk show hosts, teachers, and just about anybody preaching the American gospel. The American gospel says you can have it all, You should have it all. In fact, you should have what someone else has. The American Gospel says, the first shall be first and second is first loser. The American Gospel avoids discomfort and pain. Steer clear of the tough stuff. The American Gospel says, don't worry, there's a pill for that. The American Gospel says, deny yourself nothing, indulge in everything. The American gospel says that there is nothing a healthy dose of debt can't buy you. The American gospel has led to the formation of a nation with a deep sickness of the soul. Listen to these radical, un-American words of Jesus. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what what does it benefit you? If you gain the whole world but lose your soul, is there anything, anything at all worth more than your soul? So let's break this down. Un-American principle number one, follow. 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 I've read dozens of books on leadership. There are countless studies and seminars available to train people to lead better. Can you name one good book on followership? One. When's the last time you signed up for a course on getting better at getting in line and following someone else? If any of you wants to be my follower... Jesus said. The New International Version puts it this way If any of you wants to be my disciple, Jesus literally says, If anyone resolves to come after me. The word here is used also in, in John 12 19 when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the Pharisees observe, Look how the whole world has gone after him. That's a form of following. It is used in 1 Timothy 5.15 of people who have peeled off from Jesus to follow Satan instead. It's used in Revelation 13.3 of those who will follow after the beast. It's a term that implies giving your allegiance and your life over to someone else who will then take the lead. Now if you've been listening to evangelical teaching for the past number of decades, you would likely be left to conclude that salvation is all about the benefits. It's about what we get from a relationship with Jesus. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you go to heaven when you die. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you'll have less problems and less pain. Health and wealth will abound. Pray, live right, hold out your hands and expect an outpouring of God's blessing. Yet Jesus starts with these words. If anyone resolves to come after me, if anyone wants to be my follower, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he doesn't talk benefits. He talks responsibilities. He doesn't talk about position. He talks about a posture, a posture of submission. By the way, he doesn't offer this as some sort of radical Christian Cadillac plan, okay? It's not just for the radically committed this offer is to anyone who chooses to believe. He does not say, believe, then maybe follow. He says, believing is following, and following is believing. Next line on American principle number two you must give up your own way. The more classic way of stating this deny yourself. I hear two different implications. In that wording, you must give up your own way or you must deny yourself. Deny yourself is, I think, the harder thing to hear. The American way is indulge yourself. If one is good, two is better. Never say no to you. A gluttonous, hedonistic lifestyle is not a sin in the American gospel. It's being a good American. Live to satisfy you my observation, the more we pursue the American way of life, the more empty we become. The more dissatisfied we become, the more hangry we become. The wanting is never satisfied, and so we pursue more, we strive for more, we demand more, and we remain unfulfilled. Yet Jesus said the path to followership is self-denial. Now, there's something in the New Living Translation's way of wording this that seems a bit self-evident. They they deny they translate deny this way. You must give up your own way. There is something logical about this, right? If I'm going to follow, I can't keep taking back the lead. I can't choose to be the leader and the follower at the same time. My own way must go away. His way becomes my way. It's similar to the words of John the Baptist. He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. And so the life of the follower becomes a life of surrender. We become a living example of the prayer, not my will, but yours be done. We live out your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do you think we are praying when we say those words? We're saying, you lead, I'll follow. I'll surrender. I trust you. Next line, on american principle number three. You must take up your cross. Luke's, Luke makes it even more definitive. You must take up your cross daily. And so the question comes, what does it mean to take up one's cross? This is not the only time Jesus uses this phrase in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 10, Jesus calls his 12 disciples and then he sends them out into the world to do mission. He gives them a long list of instructions as well as warnings. He tells them that this particular mission they're going on is to the lost sheep of Israel. It's it's not to Gentiles, it's not to Samaritans. Not at this time. He instructs them to go with no money and to freely accept generously extended hospitality. He tells them what to do if they're invited in, and he tells them what to do if they're rejected. And then he warns them strongly. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves, but beware, you'll be handed over to the courts, you'll be flogged with whips in the synagogues, you will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers." But this will be your opportunity to tell the rulers and other unbelievers about me. When you are arrested, don't worry about what you're going to respond, what you're going to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. For it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. He's sure not soft selling the task, is he? He's sure not at all. He then gets into what is confusing teaching for a lot of people. If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. Jesus chooses what would be the most precious thing in all the world to a healthy human being, family and family relationships. It's the reason we exist. And he says, even that can't matter more to you than me. The key to understanding this passage is those two words, more than, more than. He's saying, he's not saying don't love your family. He's saying, I should matter more. And then he says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, You are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Pretty much the same words as we read this morning in Matthew 16. But the context helps us with the understanding. Matthew 10 has 42 verses. Instruction to the 12 as they go out into the world to minister. He says in verse 28, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body but cannot touch your soul. He finishes by saying, fear only God, who can destroy both your soul and your body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. I love that. He says, do you have any idea how much you matter to God? He will never leave you alone. You think you're paying some great price as a follower of Jesus? No way. It's a privilege. It's a privilege that we get to live out. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. It is safe to say whatever I am clutching in life is my replacement cross. It's the thing I've chosen to adore. It's the thing I've chosen to worship. It is my replacement cross. He goes through a list in this passage, a list of replacement crosses, comfort, safety, being liked, being accepted, being popular, being rewarded, family, we, things that we clutch, things that we think are more important than God, things that we think really matter. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. We're supposed to be dying daily. We're supposed to be daily surrendering. We are daily releasing the grip. We are daily letting go. Not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. When I say those words with sincerity, when I own them, when I live those words, I'm taking up my cross daily. And we have to do it daily because the temptation to lay it down is so strong. And because throughout our lives, the things we need to surrender keep changing. You didn't have to give up that, that love that displaced your love for your kids before you have kids, but now you have them. Early on, it was easy to say, well, I could lose my job. I'm only making seven fifty dollars an hour. But now you've been there for 20 years. And you're dug in, and this place is comfortable. And the thought of losing something is hard. Throughout our lives, God keeps saying, here's a new way that you have to pick up the cross daily. Can I say something before moving on from this, though? Taking up the cross has been cheapened by many to the equivalent of enduring minor annoyances. Stuck in traffic every day. Oh, just a cross I have to bear. In its most literal sense, Jesus was saying, will you follow me to death? Are you willing to be a martyr for me? That request is a far cry from a traffic jam. Taking up the cross is a daily pattern of resignation, of surrendering, of letting go, of owning surrender as a lifestyle. Not my will, but yours be done. Hear Jesus say it in the garden. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. It is not to say that Jesus had no preferences. What does he say? If it's possible, take this cup of suffering away from me. He had a preference. Like Jesus, we will still have preferences. We will still have desires. But we will be able to say... I want your will to be done, not mine. I surrender, I let go, I'm the follower. I want to call to your memory once again uh, the words of the theologian Ignatius of Loyola. In what was called the first principle and foundation, he writes, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. This is what's referred to as holy, differ- holy indifference, not a shallow sort of, you know, eh, whatever's indifference, not that. No, this is holy indifference. It is not that I have no preferences But ultimately, I'm able to say my preference is God's way, God's will, God's desire. That may be health, or it may be sickness that gets me there. It may be wealth, or it may be poverty that gets me there. It may be success or failure. It may be many, many years, or it may be a short life. But everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life in God. Holy Indifference says that our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and I choose what leads to God deepening his life in me. That's what it means to live a cross-formed life. I want and I choose Whatever leads to God deepening his life in me. It is not that we do not have preferences. I do. But over time, my preference is God deepening his life in me, no matter what that may mean. And I want and I choose whatever God thinks will grow me in the best way. This is what it looks like to follow after Jesus. This is what it looks like to deny ourselves, to give up our own way, to shoulder our crosses daily, and to follow Jesus. This is what it means to live a cross-shaped life. So imagine this. The whole culture is a stream and all the fishies are swimming along with the current. We're all just swimming and swimming and swimming and having a great time. And every once in a while, one of the fish says, I'm going that way. And this one, he's working twice as hard, not only because the current is strong, but because there's a traffic jam coming this way. And he's swimming and he's swimming and he's swimming really, really hard. The, the, the lemming lunge is happening in that direction. And this one's coming this way. Every once in a while, someone chooses to go the other way. They challenge the current. They swim for their lives. And you know what happens? Everyone floating that way notices, including our kids. Maybe especially our kids. They see what everybody else is doing. But you're not. You're not. And you know what it does? It raises questions. It challenges perspective, and it starts to create an appetite. I want that. I want that. The cross-shaped life helps people to realize that they are hungry and that the fists full of junk, they're cramming it to their cheeks, just isn't cutting it. So let me offer a couple ways that we see the, the cross-formed life lived out. One cross you will have to endure is, is accusation and insults, false charges. We're going to label this persecution with a small p. Look at what Peter says, by the way, a man who is an expert at living and dying daily, living out the cross shaped life. He says, Now, who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? It's kind of, you know, he's saying, well, Of course, if you're doing good, nobody's going to give you any grief. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for doing it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. He says if someone has asked for the reason for the hope that is in you, explain it. Do it in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for good, doing good if that's what God wants. Catch that line. Please don't leave it out. It is better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. There is so much to unpack here. Let me just pull out a couple of points. Doing right doesn't always lead to Smiles. We assume that if we do good, everybody's going to go, yay! Have you ever done good, and people look at you like, what in the world are you doing? And they start getting all nasty, and they're like, what's going on here? We live under this American delusion that if we package the gospel in, in, in just the right way, that people will love it, and they will love us. Here's the thing. If I am declaring and living the truth of this book Some people, in fact, a lot of people, will not be happy. Doing right does not always lead to smiles, but doing right does lead to reward, and it leads to awakening. This is important to see. We saw this last week as we examined 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The cross-shaped life sees the bigger picture. Who am I living to please? I'm living to please the God of the universe. What am I living for? I'm not just living for now. I'm living for there and then for what's coming next. But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it, Peter says. Doing the right thing leads to reward. It also leads to awakening. He says, then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Eventually, they're just watching your reactions. They watch the way you react to insult and you go, that's not the way people normally do this. And when they finally make the connection to your faith, something clicks inside. The centurion who led the crucifixion of Jesus watched the way Jesus suffered the way he endured the pain, the way he absorbed the insults. He saw the way Jesus died, and what did he say? This was truly a righteous man. This was the Son of God. Doing what was right did not spare Jesus from suffering. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. He still suffered, but it did lead to the will of the Father being accomplished. In all of this, we've just begun to scratch the surface of what it means to live a cross shaped life. The way we handle our persecutions displays the power of the cross and the presence of Jesus within us. This is also true in the way we handle our personal pain and our suffering, even our physical pain. I want you to watch the story of an author. His name is Paul Tripp. I watched this and I was impressed with how he conveys the idea of walking through what we would call cross-shaping suffering.
2: I cannot live as I once did. I cannot do what I once did. I cannot press through what you have chosen for me. I cannot break free. I cannot will for something better. Weakness is my lot. Suffering is my prison. You have chained me to frailty. I cannot break free. October 19th of 2014 I walked over with Luella to Jefferson Hospital because I was having some minor symptoms. I thought maybe 45 minutes in the little examining room they'd give me a medication and send me home and was shocked when within 15-20 minutes that there were doctors from five different departments in my examining room. I can remember laying there and hearing in the background Doctors discussing whether they would put me on dialysis. I, I thought they had the wrong room. That was the first time I realized that whatever was going on in my body was way more serious than I had any concept of. The first 36 hours in the hospital, I went through unspeakable pain, full-body spasms that felt like somebody was sticking a knife in me. It was unrelenting every two minutes. I wanted to die. My adult son said, I never knew this level of suffering existed, Dad. That first visit became ten days, and it was ten days to try to get a hold of my kidneys so they would not continue to disintegrate. It was then I realized that I wouldn't have to have follow-up surgery Little did I know that I would develop scar tissue that would mean another surgery, and that was six surgeries. I would never not be sick the rest of my life. There's the weakness of of suffering. just a loss of control. There's the pain of wondering what God is doing. There's this irrationality that How could it be that God would render me the weakest in my life at the point of my greatest influence? God was doing things in the heart of Paul Tripp that had long needed to be done. That what I would have named as faith in Christ was actually pride in my strength, pride in my ability to produce, pride in my physical health that's not real faith and God put me in a place where I began to actually believe that his grace is sufficient it's made perfect in my weakness those hammers on me were hammers of an artist changing the shape of my heart so that I would believe in a more deeper fuller way what I had preached to others for years. to produce that in me. This has been worth it. This prison is your workroom, and I am your clay. You are not a jailer, you are a potter. I have not been condemned. I am being molded. My weakness is not about what I am enduring. My weakness is about what I am becoming. My strength is and has always been you.
1: Remember that line, this is not about what I am enduring, this is about what I am becoming. If this is what it takes for God to grow this in me, then it is worth it. Incredible lines to be able to say. That's what it means to live a cross-shaped life in the face of suffering. Last Friday night, Shelley and I headed over to Rosemont for Daigle Day. We had some fun watching Lauren Daigle sing. I've been impressed with so many of the songs on her new album. They're not all Candyland and sunshine. The words of several of the songs appear to be born out of a season of waiting, of longing, of hoping when hope seemed unreasonable. One such song is the one that Shelley sang last week for communion called Rescue. It's written from the perspective of God speaking, speaking to one of his absolutely desperate children. And here's why we need to absorb this. One might hear this message today and think it's all about what we need to do. Come on now, suck it up. Fight, endure, struggle, follow, shoulder the cross, let's go. But we read these words from the Apostle Paul last week. Now we have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great tre- treasure. It makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. What is he saying? He's saying that our fragile nature proves that power shining through us is not self-originated. It is the power of God. God. What does this generation need? It needs a power encounter. They need to see a demonstration of an inexplicable power. And you know what? We need that too. We need to know that we are not doing this on our own. We are not carrying our cross daily on our own. We're not just trying our hardest and giving it our best. No. We need to know that when we are weakest, when we are most broken, when we are most desperate, that's when the light of God's power comes shining through the cracks in our clay vessel. You are not alone in this. You don't don't take up your cross just to be good. You take it up so God can shine. At the moment, you are most desperate and alone. He says, I will send out an army to find you in the middle of the darkest night. It's true. I will rescue you. I'll always be there. You are not alone. You are never, never, never alone. And so living out a cross-shaped life as followers of Jesus and as a church is far less about showing off our many successes and it is instead about highlighting our weaknesses, knowing it is then that God's presence and God's power shine through the cracks in our fragile pottery. As a church, we dedicate ourselves to stand courageously for truth. As a church, we dedicate ourselves to love lost people, broken people with great compassion, And as a church, we dedicate ourselves to live out a cross-shaped life, a cross-shaped gospel. Stand with me. Father God in heaven, I pray that we would not just read the words of Jesus or hear the words of Jesus, but that we would own the words of Jesus. That we would stop trying to take the lead and for a change, we'd say, all right, I trust you enough to show me the way that we would find ourselves more and more being willing to do it your way rather than our way. And Father, as that happens, as it takes place, we know that (laughs) it's not going to be an easy road to walk, but it's the right road to walk. And we are never alone. You are always with us. You will not leave us to figure it out on our own. Your power will be in us and will be shown through us, and we're grateful for that, and we love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, Mark, I, I have a secret escapeway here, so if you go out that door and go to the front door, you get there way faster than all these people. They think I'm like Superman or something flying over. So if you would go out there and head to the front door, I know people are going to want to say goodbye to you, okay? Uh, you enjoy your day. We'll see you.
3: hidden there's never been a moment you were forgotten you are not hopeless Though you have been broken